Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Unfounded Podcast. I hope you're doing good out there, everyone. It's been a little while since I've been on here, and uh, I remembered to turn on the rear microphone this time, not like last episode, so hopefully this sounds a little bit better to you than that last one did. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that last episode. It was uh, definitely a doozy for me, if you couldn't tell. (laughs) The last couple, actually. Uh, I've been dealing with a lot, you know, and... um, in many ways, in reflection on what I've done through this podcast in the last 50 episodes, it's been 51 now, actually, I think this will be 52. Um, I've been trying to kind of pull meaning out of it, right? Uh, In a weird way, uh, when you start a project, I think that you don't have the kind of crystal clear vision of what it's going to be that we like to think of when we think of making something new or starting a new project, right? it's more hazy than that. And um, when I started this podcast, it was really, as you could hear if you listened to the first episode, it's kind of an attempt to get my ideas out in a way to have a venue or a platform to talk about things that I care about, things that matter to me that I don't feel often come up in everyday conversation. Uh, And even more so that that I, I was yearning for a certain kind of depth in conversation that is hard to find with individuals and and that maybe that conversation can happen internally and and what i've found and i hope you found as well is through this podcast is that that um that internal dialogue can be just as engaging uh as a dialogue with another individual now maybe it's a little different experience for you because you're listening to me talk to you right um so that might be a very different experience but I do hope that while we've been going through this podcast, while I've been talking through some of these ideas and kind of going inside of myself and trying to figure out where these ideas stem from and who I am individually, that you've been doing that same kind of work and having that internal dialogue start in you as well, Uh, because it is deeply necessary. And I don't think there's been a time where it's more necessary than right now. Um, Things are really amping up here. and there's a there's an energy to the time that is existential in nature. Uh, I just got done with dinner with some friends upstairs, and we were watching. Uh, we watched uh, Joe Biden's acceptance speech at the DNC, uh, and kind of watching a bunch of different videos, um, more politically related. Uh, and one of the things that I pulled out of um, Biden's speech was that he, he had. There's a moment when he. He was talking about this being an important time, an existential time that that you can feel in this election, in this uh, decision that we're about to come to a, a certain type of gravity uh, that's hard to express. And when I first heard him say that, uh, I got to be honest, I was a little put back that I didn't um, like the way he was leveraging that that existential crisis. And let me, let me try to explain what I mean by that. Um, that I have a fear that while that may be true, that the decision we're coming to or the time frame that we're, we're coming to in this election is important, that we may be tricking ourselves into thinking we have more control over it than we actually do. That many of the frustrations we experience in in the United States and in our, our form of government, I think, stems from uh, an illusion that we've created. Uh, that illusion being that um, that 
the outcomes of our federal, you know, our elections at a federal level um, define not only the direction of the country, um, but it's like soul at a deep level. This is another thing that uh, that Biden talked about in that, that we're in a fight for the soul of the nation. I've heard him say this multiple times. We're in a fight for the soul of the nation. I've been trying to pull that apart and figure out what he means by that, because in saying that the United States has a for fighting for the soul of the nation, it, it assumes that there's a singular idea of what the United States is. And I don't think I agree with that. And I'm going to try to, I guess, explain why I say that. A democratic system... Um, in many ways, I think is, to, is built or is designed to leverage uh, the breadth of experience uh, that exists within a polity um, the most effectively. It's, it's, it's designed to try to leverage all of that varied experience so that every single individual perspective has a, has holds equal weight. So that if there is a perspective that is more dominant, if there is a perspective that um, seems outsized, that we don't need to define what that is, that the system itself will define what that is through the democratic process, right? That you will see uh, through that, the election or whatever, uh, yeah, the election itself, right? And the process of voting, you'll see which perspective is more dominant, right? And that that ideally will be embodied in the outcome. That, and this is where like the, the faith in our electoral system comes comes in as well, right? That that in order for a democratic system to kind of function properly, we need to believe that it is um, legitimate. That that is the best way to come to a decision, and that we have to recognize the ind- the individuality without w- the varied experience in the world in our polity that no two people are identical uh, that identifying with a group while it may be comfortable is not always is not the best way forward it's a philosophical idea too focus on the individual But then, in focusing on that 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 uh, outcome of our democratic system, um, and trusting in the system to to distill the perspective that resonates with the most citizens and embody that in a figure and a purpose that can remedy whatever plight is defined. I'm doing a very bad job, guys, of of describing what I'm trying to say. The words aren't coming out very easily. (laughs) Maybe I'm getting caught on that and it's not really necessary. 
I see something dangerous in the message that I, 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 I heard Joe Biden deliver tonight. And it's in this idea that the best way to define ourselves is by the group that you identify with. That you shouldn't try to figure out what makes you different. That instead you should try to figure out how you fit into these certain groups. So how to figure out is to figure out how you are a victim. In what way this system or this world has victimized you. And then to identify yourself by that grouping. And then to try to fight and make that perspective the perspective. To show in some ways that that suffering is the worst form of suffering. And I think that in I think this is why you see, you know, the African American community and the Native American community and the Latino community and these different minority communities constantly being leveraged in, uh, in, in democratic discourse. Um, because it's an attempt to motivate people and I think control people It's like if you want to get people to vote for you, it's really hard to go individually to those and those people and to convince them. There's too many people, right? It's really hard to find one argument or, 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 or one platform that fits everyone because it doesn't exist. But what you can do is identify that suffering exists and then tell people that the most important thing about them is how they have suffered. And then to tell them that they should identify with that suffering. And then to tell them you're the cure for that suffering. <laughs> you see? Because there isn't a cure for that suffering. That's the trick of it. That in, in some ways, every single individual that has ever lived has been victimized or has been has suffered in some way that either hasn't been ever fully enunciated or realized or will never be fully enunciated and realized. And because of that, that suffering will exist. Now, I think a lot of the desire of the modern human being is to eliminate suffering itself. We've talked about this before in the podcast. And it's, it's this desire for comfort that stems from that, that fear of suffering that is causing us in some ways to become an intellectually lazy polity. To look for ideals, for broad sweeping arguments that we can apply and paint in broad brushes so that we can, we can paint the whole world with a broad brush. But that in doing that, what we're creating is tribes of individuals who each, not only individuals of egos, that believe they are the only ego, or that they're justified in enunciating they are the only ego. And then in a weird way, we play this sick game of weighing each other's suffering and 
and trying to identify whether one form of suffering is better or worse. Isn't that a weird thing we do? Right? Look how I've suffered. That makes me better than you. That's a really weird thing, right? Look how much I've suffered. I'm better than you because of that. It's illogical. Yet I still see this message coming through. And then on top of that, you actually really don't want to eliminate your suffering. You really don't. Because you eliminate your suffering, what makes you different then? Your suffering doesn't make you the same as other people. Your suffering makes you different. Makes you unique. That doesn't mean you're supposed to go show the world how unique your suffering is. Well, actually, maybe it does, but in a positive way. I think maybe the point is that, yes, you have suffering. You have a very specific type of suffering. Each individual does. Now, you may be able to identify where your suffering kind of lines up in certain aspects to other people, right? For instance, let's take the African-American community. A lot of African-Americans have, have experienced injustice uh, and, and, and racism through their interactions with police, right? Now, each one of those individual situations, that suffering was probably different for each of those people, right? The situation that surrounded that. But that we've classified all of that suffering as the same suffering. Because I think in some ways we've identified that it's powerful when you group people together in that way. That if you get them really, really uh, anger and resentment and hurt are very powerful emotions very 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 powerful emotions and then when you combine those emotions together and give them a vector whew, you've got a really really powerful polity but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a, it's a, it's a good power it's a blind type of power it's an uncontrollable thing it's a fire we're playing with here Because I truly believe that you don't get over your suffering by inflicting it or showing it to other people. And I believe this because I've tested it myself. And through testing it, I've hurt a lot of people that I love and care deeply about. That when we try to show our suffering to the world without properly leveraging it to create something good out of it, what we create is more suffering of the same type or a similar type. I think in many ways the the internet, the exposure to the internet, um, and all of these different perspectives is showing this to be true. But there's something overwhelming. All you have to do is go go on YouTube, 
you'll find examples of suffering in so many different ways you never thought imaginable. You can be continually astounded by the ways in which people have suffered different than you. And that there's something that is so utterly deeply humbling about that. That's what I mean by properly leveraging your suffering. is to not get transfixed on your own suffering. But to recognize the breadth of it. How wide that is. How all-encompassing suffering is in life itself. And how varied that can be. And how specific that makes you as a thing how special that makes you not in the way that you deserve something because you've suffered that you have a right for retribution because you've suffered that in some ways you're a better person because somebody did something bad to you so that makes you better than them no you're no different than the person that hurt you You're no different than the people you hurt. You can see that inside yourself because you have hurt people, haven't you? If you say no, you're lying to yourself. I don't think there's very many out there saying no right now. (laughs) Now, you've hurt people, right? You probably hurt people in ways that you feel ashamed about. Does that make you an inherently evil or bad thing? I don't think so. I don't think you think so either. But now flip that. When somebody does something evil or hurtful to you, what do you do? What's your first reaction? What do you want to do? They're an evil. They're a bad thing. I'm better than them because they hurt me, right? You're only better than them if you figure a way, if you figure out how to distill that hurt they passed on to you. If you figure out a way to leverage that properly and to not pass it back, not, not, to not continue that given telephone, to not continually pass it on, to not make that hurt grow in somebody else. Because we've talked about this before as well. That's where evil comes from. That's how evil acts in the world. It's hurt passed on. It's suffering passed on. It's each of us believing that we're the thing that is infallible. That because we've suffered, we're somehow deserving of something else, of something. And that somebody else in that world should give it to you. 
that it's not your responsibility to fix your life. It's somebody else's responsibility to fix your life because they hurt you. They took something from you. They at some point said something that undermined blah, 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 or whatever you want to do. You can, I mean, whatever way somebody has hurt you, it can be something really drastic, something really serious, something horrendous and horrible. The more horrendous, the more horrible, the more difficult this problem becomes. But it doesn't change. The problem doesn't change because the thing becomes more horrible. Still the same problem. It's still your responsibility as an individual to figure out how you take that suffering that you just experienced or whatever you've experienced and to transform it into good. You are the thing that has the capacity and the capability to do that. I think that's why you're here. I think you're a waste of space if you don't do that. If I have to be blunt. And I gotta be honest, I think there's a lot of people out there right now. The majority of people are that waste of space. That not only do they not take the suffering that they experience and try to make something good out of it. No, 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 no. They take that suffering and they try to make other people see it and feel it. They want to make them suffer with them. I don't want to suffer alone. You suffer with me. Come here. Let me hold you here in this pain. That's a waste of what you are. That is an evil thing. That's a greedy thing. It's a jealous thing. It's a bitter thing. It's a lustful thing. Lusting for the life you didn't have. Right? It's a violent thing a lot of the time. It's a nasty thing. It's an evil thing. It is why in all of our religious texts there's this or at least in the Western religious text, there's this idea of good versus evil inherent within. It's because that dilemma is the dilemma. But it's a dilemma, it's an internal dilemma, a dilemma within you, the individual. All of the evil that has ever existed in the world lives inside of you, and all of the good that has ever existed in the world lives inside of you. You're the thing that can choose left or right. Do I pass it on? Or do I distill it? I think in many ways, I started this as like a political conversation, right? I'm going to try to take it back there. Um, What I don't like about the political, the, the, the message being touted on the political left in the United States right now is we are, I think, leveraging the negative aspects of the individual. This is what I was trying to say earlier. I was having a very hard time enunciating it. That in allowing people to identify with their suffering um, and, then, and then forcing a narrative in which the only thing that exists is the groups in which we've defined the most prominent suffering, right? It's like, it's like, here's the groups that have 
here's the suffering we see the most examples of, right? And that if you fit into one of those groups that you shouldn't try to figure out how to leverage that in a positive way to kind of realize your own individuality, you should actually trade that individuality away for a group think, a group identity that is based purely and solely on the hurt you've experienced. And then to look for in the world and other groups and other people, retribution of sorts, justice, but a perverted version of justice, not the one I described many episodes ago, that, that feeling of neither side getting satisfaction but something seeming just right like i think that's what real justice is 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 when no no neither side's satisfied but neither side feels taken advantage of right that in, instead of instead of that kind of justice we perverted uh, these groups pervert that idea into into revenge the retribution into making other people feel the pain you felt and that politically to see political figures like Joe Biden stand on a stage and not only define those groups for people but to tell them that they're justified in identifying themselves that way and they're justified in trying to make other people feel that suffering that because they've experienced that suffering the systems that we've had in place for centuries now right are the cause of all suffering all of those groups suffering and that the way that we fix that is by deleting or 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 reimagining the entire system in which we put in place and it's a it's a premise that it's a false premise you can't do that that you can't fix suffering that way. You can't fix suffering. It's not a problem to be fixed <laughs> in that way. Because your fix is making more of it. In the way I just described it, your fix would be to create suffering in somebody else. And labeling somebody else or some other group or some other institution as the problem. We're doing nothing but making monsters out of those things. And in many ways, I think... Damning those people and institutions... Into a role... It's something like... If you define somebody as inherently evil or an institution as inherently evil, you give them no room to argue against it. I can't prove a negative to you. You know what I mean? I can't prove that I'm not that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody can prove, like let's say if somebody called me racist or whatever it is, I can't prove that I'm not that to you. There's literally no logical way to do it. It's an impossibility. You cannot prove a negative, right? So in many ways, this, 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 this very extreme liberal movement to identify and 
force out all of these people who are hidden racists or hidden evil people or hidden misogynists or whatever the hell you want to call them, these evil things. But all we need to do is find those people and get them to enunciate that they're those evil things and then everything will be solved. That in that you create monsters out of people and you give them no, they have no recourse. They have no ability to, to, to describe to you that they aren't that because you're setting up a narrative in which they already are that. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> and that we've done that on the political left in this country. And I'm speaking from a place, a classical liberal, liberal place, a place that I'd love to see the Democratic Party embody. One of individuality, <laughs> but the kind of individuality that stems from focusing on developing the individual, the hard development of the individual, the process I've described and outlined in this podcast of going deep inside yourself and figuring out how the ways you've suffered have affected you and how you've allowed that suffering to affect other people and then bringing that into the light of day as painful as it can possibly be so that you can see how illogical that shit is. Because I guarantee you, as I've demonstrated two episodes ago, that as soon as you say something out loud, you'll see how fucking stupid it was. If you want to. (laughs) But you have to want to. I can't untrick you. If you're tricking yourself, I can't stop that process. If you've decided that the the solution to your problems is in other people, hmm, (laughs) I can't, there's nothing I can do for you in that. There's nothing anybody else can do for you in that. Because the solution is not in other people. It's not in other institutions. It's not in tearing down other people or institutions or groups or identifying who has done something bad to you and getting retribution. That's not how you solve that. How you solve that is figuring out how you get over it as an individual and still be something that pushes all of us upward. Maybe even somebody that finds that person that instituted that hurt in you and tries to push them up. Huh? Maybe somebody that recognizes, oh shit, maybe that person went through something in their life that caused them to institute that pain inside of me. That yeah, they passed down that pain too. Just like I've passed that pain on to other people. I've seen myself do that, right? You've seen yourself do that. That's how other people do it too. And that you, there's... In recognizing that, we demonsterize, if for lack of a better way of describing it, our quotation mark enemies, our adversaries, the villains we've created in our lives. You know what I mean? There's a really beautiful movie that Shia LaBeouf made about his life. Um, why am I forgetting the name of it right now? Honey Boy. Many of you may, may have seen this. Um, it's about, I think I've talked about it before actually. It's about Shia LaBeouf's life uh, growing up as a child star and his father. And his father, and he, he grew up with, a, with a, a very difficult childhood. You know, his father was not good to him. Abusive in many different ways, emotionally and physically, right? Took advantage of him as a child, you know, made him work 
to a degree that was inhumane, right? And then took the, the benefits of that work for himself, right? Some really evil shit. Shia LaBeouf plays his father in that movie. And I watched an interview with Shia LaBeouf. Uh, it was a round table with a bunch of other actors maybe a year ago now um, in which he was talking about his experience in making this movie and that it was a very deeply difficult process to go through for him playing the role of his father because he had to force himself into under, trying to understand why his father did what he did but the beautiful thing is is by doing that, he was able to rekindle a relationship with his father. To understand his father at a very deep level. And in many ways, to, 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 to forge a relationship and a love that is hard to describe. That there's nothing more beautiful than seeing somebody forgive another person. And that when you do that, that the relationship that's forged between those two people is something divine. It's, it's something different. There's a strength in that because it, in that dichotomy, you're... It's something like full acceptance. That in order for Shia LaBeouf to understand his father, he had to accept who his father was, including all the things that happened to him. He also had to understand what happened to his father. And all the ways that his father had experienced suffering. And why that had manifested in his life that way. And that in doing that, you reach a depth of understanding of an individual that you can only get through that kind of suffering. You see what I'm saying? That it's impossible to ever get to that point without going through something so brutally painful with that person that you at times aren't even sure It's so brutally painful that it tests the relationship itself, right? That that it that maybe even deeper than that, that is so deeply painful that it tests your will in relationships, period. Your that it tests your ability to experience another individual fully and completely. To be completely vulnerable with another individual. And that, what an astounding thing it is that love can survive that, right? Hmm. You know, bringing it back politically. 
I heard Joe talk a lot about light and love in his Democratic speech. It also, in the same message, this... encouragement of this tribalism. A tribalism based in hate. And vindiction and malice and rage and suffering and hurt and everything else. What if there wasn't an easy, broad stroke one-size-fits-all problem we can identify that has caused all of this suffering we see modern day? I think we've identified the suffering that we see modern day with at a base patriarchal system patriarchal patriarch that's a very patriarchal I don't know if I'm saying that right you get my meaning <laughs> system that has been devised and leveraged to benefit one group of people And that the way that we solve this kind of suffering that we've seen modern day is to tear down that system. What if that isn't true? Just play with that idea. What if that isn't true? What if there isn't a system like that in place? What if all of these different individual suffering instances we've seen are actually very specific cases of suffering? That we can try to draw lines of similarity between them, but they're not the same suffering. And because they're not the same suffering, there's no one place you can look to to find retribution for it or a solution for it. That the solution for each of that individual suffering is within that that situation and the people that were involved in it. That's how you get to some semblance of justice by dealing with those situations with the people in which the suffering existed. To not try to broadcast and generalize that suffering into a group that then has to try to solve each individual suffering, each individual person's suffering with a one-size-fits-all solution, (laughs) which is what we've done. And yet we, we have this guy up there saying that, yeah, I'm the thing that can fix that. And I, I don't mean to, uh, t- you know, d- to be too harsh on Joe. I really like Joe Biden as a politician from most of his political career, right? I just think the road that we are going towards and going down, and after listening to him tonight, the messages that he's proposing are 180 degrees the opposite direction we need to be going. That we don't need to be leveraging this group think. 
we don't need to be telling people to try to identify their suffering inside of another group, to try to fit their suffering inside a one-size-fits-all solution, don't do that, to try to figure out exactly how your suffering was very individual and specific, how the person or people that you suffered with um, are related to that, and in what ways you can grow as a human being by dealing with those individuals and people. in your own world and that there's an actual real beauty in that because you have a lot of power there to solve your own problem that you don't need Joe Biden to be elected president to go up there and tear down a system to make you feel better or to get make your suffering go away that all you have to do is to choose to forgive And to steel yourself against the world. To know that you're going to experience more of it. There will be more suffering that you're going to experience. Maybe the same type. Maybe from other people. But that you're never going to stop those other people from committing, from, from making you suffer. But you can stop yourself from making other people suffer. And so that the best course of action is to forgive the people that make you suffer so that you don't pass it on and become the evil thing yourself. That's what we should be voting for. (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't see that message being propagated. I'm not trying to sit here and only rail on the Democratic side. Trump and and the right do the same thing. And play into this group think as well. But it's a different type of thing. That, in many ways, the issue that comes from the more right side of the political aisle is an inability to witness other people's suffering or to take in the breadth of suffering I was talking about. That I think many times on the political right, what we have is individuals that are so individualistic and so focused on their own suffering or their own ability to overcome it, that they fail to recognize how many different ways other people suffer different than them. And how drastically that can change the path you take in life. And that there needs to be a certain understanding for that difference in path. That there needs to be a certain type of intellectual freedom that exists that allows people to recognize who they are individually fully and to articulate themselves fully individually that in many ways I think the right tries to combine everyone into this one panacea this one leviathan type group it's usually based on some kind of usually virtue based or something right but in 
most of the time it fails to recognize the complicated nature of most people's lives. And then a lot of times politically that comes off and sounds callous or cold. And that the effects of a lot of the litig- a lot of legislation that is enacted on the conservative agenda is cold in the way it is effect- it affects people and is heartless. And that in many ways has caused suffering for individuals. Because they haven't been able to fully express or realize themselves. I think this is partially why there's such a visual reaction, negative reaction in a lot of young people towards the political right, or has been. I think it stems from this individuality problem. There's a certain amount of control and uniformity that the right demands. The more radical right, I guess, but most of the right. I think I think it's more of a it's more of a problem on on the political right, the ideological right. But that we need to figure out a way we need we need new political leadership but not it's a, I feel like that's such a generic thing to say <laughs> We need something different. Yes, we do. But we need a different perspective. We we are thirsting for a deeper philosophical perspective. We've, we've deleted these kind of the meaning from the things we say. And I think that's what people are thirsting for too in many ways. Both on the left and the right. And some of the repulsion we see towards the political figure itself. You know, the politician. Is their inability to kind of express themselves genuinely because they have to fit themselves into the mold of what a politician is, or that in operating inside of that system for so long, they become a representation of the politician unintentionally or intentionally. So that the way you win the game of politics is to be a politician. And then in many ways, a lot of what the 2016 election was, was a referendum on that. On this revulsion, this, 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 this hatred towards that thing, that politician. And that in many ways, it may have been well-founded. But that we found an outlet in a political figure in Donald Trump that I think kind of not only took away the idea of the politician, but also like the idea of the virtuous individual as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like there's a certain like clean cut, like hard pressed, uh, um, politically correct nature that the politician always exuded before Donald Trump. And that we, there was a certain aspect of, uh, but it was more of like a, um, I didn't describe it right because it's not really what I'm getting at. It's like it's the part of the politician that was, um, I, I think, virtuous. That there, there was this virtuous aspect inside of the politician. The one it stems from the idea of the rep, being a representative. That um, in order to get to a 
in order to get to a place of power within our government that you have to embody some type of moral code inside of yourself. Uh, and that what we did when we threw out the idea of the politician is we threw out the idea of that moral code also. And that's why Donald Trump seems so attractive um, was because he was the antithesis of all of that, right? <laughs> kind of the embodiment of the lack of moral code as well as the lack of this kind of clean-cut, politically correct, defined politician identity. And so that many people found that very attractive and saw in him a solution that I think I kind of just called for earlier, right? But that I, I don't think was a solution, right? Um, and that maybe I've been, maybe been wrong in, in asking for that, that we, we do look... We put too much power in those single individuals. And that there's something very dangerous about what we've done to the executive branch, the position of, of the president itself, that, that we've allowed that position to grow to a much far, far more to powerful position than it was ever intended to be. That our founding fathers were very, very scared of tyranny, very scared of it. And they very intentionally made the office of the executive branch the weakest branch. <laughs> Because they didn't want a despot taking over the country. And that we've done slowly over time because we yearn for this simple solution and we've politically leveraged the idea that there is a simple solution. We've looked for the singular place that it could be, which has to be one person, right? So we look for one person that can solve all that, that hurt and suffering and rinse and repeat. We just keep on trying to elect people that way, whatever our individual suffering is or whatever way we've experienced injustice or, or our lives have gotten worse this last four-year cycle. Let's go ahead and find another singular individual we can identify that would be the antithesis of everything I just experienced and let's vote that person in as if that's going to be a solution. The definition of insanity. <laughs> If, if we wanted to really fix our political system practically, what we need to do is focus at the state and government and local government levels. That you have a, a, a massive amount of power in your local community that most of us do not recognize and never leverage politically. And then if you want to affect your life directly, if you want to change the ways that you suffer or the ways you feel you know, injustice in your life, that the best way to do that is to try to leverage that in your own community, locally. Not on the largest scale, on the smallest scale, starting with you and working your way out from that. And that we really have confused the whole purpose of this country in trying to elect presidents over and over again to solve our problems. That it is the opposite of what this country was designed to do. That we have tried to make kings out of presidents. And we have done that, culminating with Donald Trump. <laughs> and in some ways, we've gotten to the king, and the king didn't work, so we're like, ah, maybe we need a queen. <laughs> It was probably because it was all guys. That was probably why it didn't work very well. Women aren't despotic. Let's put them in there. Really? 
There's some really horrible examples of how women have been very despotic throughout history. Cleopatra is a very good example of that. She used to stab golden needles into her slaves' breasts for fun. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Evil's a human condition, not a male condition. That's another problem that we're going that the left is dealing with right now. The left has allowed themselves to be overtaken by radical groups like feminism, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, all of these. And if they're not careful, those those <laughs> radical groups are very close to actually having real political power in this country. They have power right now, but they don't have political power inside of, like, on the levers of government. They're not the people inside of there saying, hey, should we just, like, blow it up? You know what I mean? We're very close to allowing those kind of radical groups to get inside of our country. That's a pretty radical view of mine. <laughs> and I don't mean to say that to offend anybody, but it's also my truth, so I'm going to say it. And also try to figure out where I'm wrong. Because even though that's what I believe is true, I am fallible as all hell. <laughs> Holy shit, have I been wrong in the past and am I continually wrong like every day holy crap it's humbling and um, almost like a little overwhelming at times how inadequate I can be how blind I can be how much I want to reaffirm what I've already accepted as founded nothing's founded people I don't know if we've figured that out at this point there is no objective truth. Nietzsche argued for this. He's right. There's no objective truth. There's no overarching truth. Truth is an internal thing. Truth is like a compass. It guides you. You gotta constantly recalibrate that thing. Constantly recalibrate it. Because it's it's a, you get off course in various very insidious ways. You know that calibration goes out of alignment very slowly, so you don't really notice it. <laughs> Until all of a sudden you're sailing the opposite direction. Thinking you're still going the same way. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Be critical of yourself. Don't trust yourself too much. You really like to be right. And with that, that's the Unfounded Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this one, guys. I know uh, there's a lot of breaks when I was speaking. I was like, I had a lot of pauses. Sorry for that. Hope you still enjoyed it. 
Um, please like, share, and subscribe if you did. Uh, I, I really enjoy this podcast, guys. It's it's uh, like I said, we're at, this is the fifty second episode, um, eight months in, and I'm. <laughs> it's kind of crazy that it's already been that many uh, hours worth of content. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed it thus far, and I will be back at it soon. Bye bye.